Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Tyler. Hello. Tyler is joining us from Akron today, um, where, uh, and this is a story that has gotten some national attention, but I imagine to a lot of our listeners, uh, this will be the first time you've heard of it. Um, Akron police, uh, I believe it was June 27th, uh, shot a man named Jalen Walker uh, dozens of times, killing him in the process. And in the weeks since, there's been you know, naturally outrage over this. And, um, well, this is a story that Tyler can tell better than I can. And Tyler, why don't you sort of give the overview? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, thanks for having me on as well. Um, definitely appreciate, you know, the work that is going on in lots of local chapters and being able to, uh, connect with y'all about the work that you're doing and how we can really influence that and get wins uh, in our community. So, um, yeah, you, you had the details right. Um, Jalen Walker was an unarmed uh, black man working two jobs um, in Akron and after a, a traffic violation, um, ran from police and was shot at over 90 times. And, uh, you know, we've really been on the ground uh, with the community you know, there's been obviously, like you said, outrage and pain and anguish. Um, you know, we saw a lot of movement in 2020 around George Floyd. Um, you know, we had lots of protests here in Akron um, that, you know, we kind of felt, I think, similarly to a lot of places around the U.S. where afterwards, not really a whole lot changed, you know. And we're in this spot now where we want to be a bit more strategic about it. And uh, we've been working with, you know, uh, local organizations kind of in coalition, really in kind of action mode. But a lot of this has been led by the community. Uh, you know, the first people to protest were members of the family. And, you know, they were out there uh, all day long. And, you know, that obviously brought more people out. Um, and then you can see things spiral out of control from there, right? Uh, any sort of escalation and violence would come from, you know, instigation by the police um, or escalation by the police. You know, we even had a peaceful march on July 4th uh, to deliver pieces of paper with uh, our thoughts and, and, and demands on what should change to the mayor. No one knew where we were, where we were going, uh, but the mayor still had 20 to 25 um, fully armed police officers on his front lawn and SWAT assembled two Bearcats that came barreling down the street. We had children with us uh, that we had to get out of the way. And, um, you know, it was obviously really traumatizing for a lot of people. And just because we had pieces of paper, right? Um, so this is what we've kind of been facing lately and now kind of begun the work of strategy building within the community and going after really where the power is, making our voices heard and uh, trying to develop, you know, more and more folks into organizing and, and working in that capacity. Yeah. Just from my personal perspective, something that uh, what you've described reminds me of is, you know, one of the things that sort of 
brought me to the left in a way was um, 2014 and Ferguson, um, not, not just the killing of Michael Brown that, you know, sort of uh, saw this, this huge natu- national response at the time, but it was the way that police in Ferguson in the St. Louis area responded to those protests at the time, seeing the, the tanks on the streets and the way that protesters were cracked down upon brutally. And, you know, we've seen that in city after city since, and you mentioned the nationwide protests of 2020, every city has their story from those. And unfortunately also their story of, you know, an incident that happened in their city as well. Yeah. It being from San Juan, there's there's a few different experiences with police that even like relatively middle class people will have had that are super not positive. I mean, just a, a complete lack of refusal to do anything for anyone who's not a tourist. Um, there have been repeated stories of of Puerto Ricans uh, pro, who can who spend time in the United States approaching police officers and pretending to not be able to speak Spanish simply because that puts them off their guard, things like that. And coming here and finding that level of trust, that that basic level of trust and respect for cops, I mean, that was never an option. Not after we've, I have not had to deal personally with anything, you know, like getting tear gassed or anything like that, that, that kind of escalation. But it was enough to know that these were not people interested in public safety whatsoever. And I think the most, annoying element here and the most dangerous one certainly is that it really doesn't matter what they do it really doesn't matter if there's video it doesn't matter uh how conscious the decisions are it really doesn't matter how much violence they use or how disproportionate that violence is you will still find if not a majority certainly a plurality of this country is willing to go to bat for people who haven't given them a second thought and wouldn't give them a second thought and in many cases would frankly, from what we're seeing, happily murdered them too. So it's, it, it's, it's, what is it, just yesterday, police fired into a crowd in downtown Denver, shot multiple people. So now they're even perpetrating this. It's, we've gotten to a point where it's an, un, it's an untenable situation. Well, the, the power that they have, you know, especially locally within their jurisdiction really comes out at times like these, where, you know, we've learned that They've controlled the whole story from start to finish. And lots of things for lots of people didn't add up. Um, and because of that, you know, they've had to backtrack, um, you know, and, and make up things to make him look uh, like he was a thug or like he was shooting a gun when he wasn't um, planting a gun, you know, in his driver's side seat just to make it look like really that's um, that's what we're going after. But and everyone, you know, trusting that. And I think. What has been, you know, interesting to see is, I think people are more radical at this point. I think, you know, people know that in 2020 nothing really happened, and uh, they want to do something about it. You know, I think there were very few folks in Akron um, calling for the defunding of Akron Police Department in the wake of George Floyd, and now that's one of the main demands that community organizers have put together and delivered to, you know, the mayor and city council. So I do think there's a shift in the mentality because you can see it, but yeah, the power that the police have is definitely really kind of on full strength um, in times like these. 
Yeah, uh, I can speak, you know, sort of locally, um, the, the incident in Rochester that sort of um, brought back protesters to the streets after they had sort of died down in the summer of 2020 was the revelations about the killing of Daniel Prude. As I said before, every city has one of these incidents now, it seems like, where, you know, an unarmed black person was killed by police and, you know, the community has tried to bring even just attention to it, let alone accountability, because the accountability can be can seem sometimes unachievable. It didn't happen in the case of Daniel Prude. The grand jury chose not to indict. Uh, you know, these things. But we've seen in, as you said, people are more aware now, at the very least. They are quicker to distrust the official version of events. Um, we've seen how that unraveled in, uh, for example, the Evalde shooting a couple months ago now, uh, where the first version that police told of what happened that day was wildly different from what security footage and you know investigation has shown to be the case. And so that is something that, in theory, can be built upon. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there are going to be folks who, no matter what, trust what the police say, you know, and that's a dead end, right? I think where you're talking about people starting to distrust that and question it a little bit is kind of the perfect place for us to really start talking about the real issues, you know, and saying, yeah, reform hasn't worked. You know, we are a mid-sized city in Ohio. We're the fifth largest city in Ohio, and we spend $62 million a year on police. How insane is that, you know, and just kind of thinking about, wow, that that is a lot of money. You know, what else could we do with that when our you know parks are crumbling, our roads are falling apart? You know, there are places where you know houses are falling apart, too. And, you know, the police have full military gear and, and bear cats and tear gas. You know, and we even had support from a lot of, you know, really amazing folks come out to Akron members of Tamir Rice's family up in Cleveland, um, even Jacob Blake Sr., um, Jacob Blake's father, who was shot in Kenosha, um, and uh, the aunt of Breonna Taylor uh, came out. And um, even, you know, when they were out protesting, uh, Jacob Blake was harassed by police, assaulted by police, handcuffed, um, and taken to the hospital because he was beaten so bad. Michael Harris was uh, also out there and was taken to the hospital and wasn't released for two days because of how bad the police beat his face up. The police put the hospital on lockdown and wouldn't let anyone in. And it was two days later when he could finally come out. And you could see, you know, pretty bad lip, pretty bad bruises, um, just for being out there protesting and saying this, this, can't, this can't happen. And of course, there's always, I, I think we got to address one thing here, which is that there's always this canard uh, deployed by politicians like Akron's mayor, Dan Horrigan, or over here, our, uh, our succession of mayors. We, we have some great mayors here in Rochester. Uh, first, Lovely Warren, and then Malik Evans. Always trying to draw this, this dichotomy between the peaceful protesters who should be protected and should be allowed to kind of carry on the work that they're doing. And then these third-party agent provocateur, violent, uh, outside actors kind of thing. And somehow 
not not that we don't know this is complete BS, right? That that's from the get go, but somehow it never it never clicks with them, or I know why it doesn't click with them rather, but it never occurs to kind of interrogate why, or rather how those can coexist. I mean, if you've got a certain goal, right, in this protest, you've got this goal of presenting these demands to ask for less violence in the community. What the heck is the point of doing a bunch of senseless violence instead? Which I'm not saying, you know, there there have been all of these cases of uh, here in Rochester, the big thing was that uh, I think a luxury store somewhere uh, got got kind of taken out during one of these protests. And that was the video that everybody was playing. It's like, well, there's probably a reason that that was the store they picked on and not, you know, the public library or the grocery store or something. But, like, it, these things happen for reasons, and it might be worth interrogating those reasons instead of just saying, well, here's these mythical protesters that need to be protected versus these other protesters that apparently we should just, you know, put in the hospital if they're lucky. Well, and seeing, too, the clear display of police power protecting private property versus, you know, protecting the community. You know, the, the, the private property, you know, they're lined up, they're, they're in their gear, they're not moving to that thing is that building is being protected. Those windows will not see, you know, a shed of, of human, but an unarmed black man running for his life because he's afraid of the police, you know, that's, that's huge and that's different. And it makes it, really difficult to kind of deal with the coverage on broken windows and, you know, businesses, um, you know, I think workers downtown that, that are losing out on this from the curfew, uh, that is ridiculous, but you know, the focus has been on business owners and broken windows and their, their insurance is going to cover that. No one, no one's insurance is going to bring back Jalen, you know, just to talk a bit more specifically about uh, Jalen Walker, there was a, an autopsy report that was released this past week um, show, saying that uh, he had 46 gunshot wounds on his body. Um, every part of his body shot by police. Uh, Tyler, do you remember how many officers were involved in this? Because that's that's more than one gun shooting all those bullets. Uh, yeah, so... Totally, uh, there were 13 officers on the scene, and there were eight that uh, unloaded their weapons and must yeah. have reloaded. Some, it just an incredible amount of force for dealing with a traffic violation. Um, I, I don't even really know what to say to that. It's... It, it's tough at this point because we've had to live through this so many times. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've had to argue with the same people for a decade at this point, And this goes all the way back to Trayvon Martin. And then it was Michael Brown. And then it was Philando Castile and um, Alton Sterling and, in, in, and Tamir Rice and Walter Scott. And there are all these names. And in each case, the objection with Trayvon Martin was, well, you know, there's no video. Then there was video. Oh, well, you know, he ran away. He didn't run away. Oh, maybe he was armed. Then he wasn't armed. In every single case, you find something out. And it's it's almost disgusting how much each of the next story pushes on the objection from the previous one. The specific thing 
that people brought up in the uh, that that defenders of cops would bring up from the previous story it's almost horrifying how much each successive case invalidated that and it just didn't matter because it, it i know that it's never mattered it's, it's never been about logic or facts or anything it's just about this feeling that you know cops are a, a professional part they're 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 heroes by definition because they wear the badge so they're special people who need to be treated in a particular way so that they don't go crazy and you know kill all the rest of us and it's very hard to come up with something new to say when we've been here so many times over just the last couple of years. I mean, we've we've talked on this show before about police unions here in Rochester. We've talked about, I know, Ryan, that you when you interviewed a photographer, uh, you talked about police weaponizing COVID against people that they took to jail, protesters and so on. Protesters and, and photographers. And photographers, yeah, journalists. Uh, and we've talked about the role that police have in kind of continuing the death spiral of the United States. And there really does come a point where you feel like you've run out of things to say other than, you know, things you can't say on this show or the FCC will be angry. Well, and I, I think that's the thing, too, is, you know, it, it becomes more and more obvious the more this happens. And I think a lot of people are waking up to that, which is the only way we're going to do anything to change this, not only what had happened to Jalen and how absolutely brutal it was, um, but the response so far, you know, very, very little has been done in terms of the demands the community has made, but in terms of protecting the police, a lot has been done. Now the police chief has made it okay for police officers to take off their name tags um, out on the job so they can work anonymously, um, you know, and, I'll be speaking at council later today saying we can't have that. No, workers can't have that. You know, uh, workers don't get to take their name tags off. Nurses don't get to do that. Um, why would police that have military gear be able to work anonymously, you know, in the communities they're supposed to serve? So. Another thing that has been so frustrating about uh, some of the discourse surrounding uh, police in this country is the way it, uh, things really diverged after 2020, after the protests of that summer, to you have people who recognize that, as you said earlier, nothing was really done in response to those protests. Uh, police budgets remained largely untouched, despite cities having to make cuts in other areas owing to the financial downturns of the pandemic and the way that impacted, you know, how much money they had in their coffers. And yet so much of the, you know, narrative in mainstream media and especially in right-wing media is that the radical changes that took place in 2020 have unleashed, you know, X, Y, and Z bad thing in the years that have followed when the policies have remained the same, the budgets have remained the same or gotten larger police power has not actually been reduced in any real way. Well, I think like we have a really unique job as socialists to point out that, you know, a lot of that is because of the class struggle in place, right? You know, understanding that the power is not in our hands right now. Um, and the, the people that um, have the power really don't want to change how things are. And, it kind of is cyclical in a way of 
the police budget continues to blow up. Um, and what do we do for more reforms is add more police budget. Um, you know, and, and how big is that going to get while everything else is being drained? So. The other thing you see is this idea that the Democratic Party is uh, in lockstep with the demands of the community to cut police funding. The, uh, Joe Biden has said repeatedly that that is not his goal. If anything, his goal is the opposite, to add to police funding, to increase police budgets. And and so you have all of these cities where Democrats control the mayor's office and city council. And there's this huge disconnect between what communities are calling for and what those in power have done in response to those calls. It, it's hard to put into words really what that does psychologically to where it feels like everybody is living in different realities. They are. I mean, that, that is literally what it is. You know, I think Tyler, you're, you're talking about um, sort of our unique function as, as socialists in this, but I think one of the other things that distinguishes us is our approach. I mean, we're looking at things as they are. We're looking at the famed material conditions. And the fact is that the way police operate in this country is not at all the way that everybody thinks that they do. And the problem that you have with that is that what they do to some degree is protect the people in power as long as they decide that those people are legitimate because we all remember when the police, again, threatened to kidnap Bill de Blasio's daughter. Like that is a thing that happened in this country. And usually when we talk about that, you know, it's about ancient Rome or it's about some other country that doesn't do things correctly, but it happened here in New York city, not that long ago. So when you have that, when you have that collection of facts, I mean, it should be obvious. It should be objective, but it's not because a lot of people have very specific priors that if they gave them up would destroy their view of everything around them. And so it's easier to continue to believe that actually every policeman is Andy Griffith, you know, and they all go around whistling and I haven't seen the show. I have no idea what I'm talking about here. I'm treading water. You're close. You're close. I'm sure. Well, and it's funny that you say that because that made me think of another point that I had that I briefly forgot about, which again, kind of as, as socialists in this movement, you know, we have the responsibility to say, you know, crime starts from poverty. Crime doesn't start from bad people. Crime doesn't start from, you know, the wrong types of neighborhoods. Crime is because people don't have access to food. People have housing insecurity. People don't have access to medicine or they have to ration it, um, you know, and understanding that changing those things in people's lives will essentially eradicate crime in general. And police are just there to really create that. And I mean, we just saw, I think it was maybe Arizona um, that said uh, they couldn't survive without the labor they get from, from prisons. So they're basically admitting that slave labor, our economy still survives on that. So we haven't advanced too far from the slave market economy that this country was founded on. Um, it's just a kind of flavor of capitalism with that that behind it. And can't confirm that that was Arizona, by the way. 
the the commissioner of prisons said that. Yeah. Uh, Noah, you you made this point that uh, you know police will sort of pick and choose the laws they're willing to enforce. Um, we've seen on a couple occasions in New York State, which is a very blue state, but has a number of rural areas, more conservative areas upstate, where rural county sheriffs will make a point of denouncing or refusing to enforce gun laws because those are not the laws that cops want to be enforcing, that conservatives want enforced. It's worth viewing police as not just agents of the state, but agents into of themselves where they have aims and goals and they will resist being reformed as we've seen repeatedly over the last decade. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really important point is that yes, you know, they serve the kind of capitalist interests of upholding private property and, you know, protecting that those capitalist people, but at the same time, you know, directly evolved from slave patrols. So that racist kind of ideology is baked into the institution of policing. Um, you know, to speak locally, uh, back in the 1920s, Akron had the largest chapter uh, of the KKK in the United States. You know, they had a, a rally in March in 1922 uh, or 1923 with 12,000 people coming to it and burning a giant cross on City Hall. And, um, you know, the, the police were there escorting them, making sure they were safe, you know, and the, the police chief at the time for three or four years was a member in good standing and very favorable to the uh, wizards in the KKK. Um, so, you know, having a grip on the police department, local officials has definitely left its mark, uh, especially, you know, a hundred years later. And in the modern day, we see echoes of that with the number of cops who were, you know, off duty at the Capitol riot on January 6th last year, or who have been spotted with, you know, tattoos that have white nationalist symbolism or Nazi symbolism. Um, Speaking of that, we actually, I just remembered uh, our steering committee put out a statement last year uh, because a local organizer had called out. Uh, an Akron police officer for having a three percenter tattoo. Um, when they called this out, this the they started to get prosecuted. Um, so the the power was very quickly turned against them. Um, so we put a statement of solidarity out and ended up prosecution didn't happen. But that person didn't leave the force, right? They're still on Akron Police Department's payroll and out there patrolling with white nationalist logos on their arm. So. Wasn't there wasn't there a police officer involved in one of these cases, and I can't remember which one it is right now, who just got hired as the only police officer for a Pennsylvania township? Something along those lines? That was the Cleveland officer who killed Tamir Rice. There uh, and actually, the department that hired him in Pennsylvania uh, smudged his name and misspelled it on accident, and people eventually found out who he was uh, and forced him to resign. So, uh huh. Yeah, he, he now resigned. Um, accident and 72 point air quotes there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's the thing, too. Like, one of the, you know, we've dealt with in, in this city doing the, um, and trying to start the, the police accountability board. 
And there's always this two-step that city police departments love to play, where on the one hand, they are, in fact, ultra-violent bullies who will use every tool of the state and repression against you. And then on the other hand, they're aggrieved little children who simply want to do what's best, and they don't understand why you're being so mean to them. And it's it's particularly heinous in in now that we know exactly what kind of person they are. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we talk about, never mind the, the linguistic um, tomfoolery that is using a few bad apples and then forgetting the rest of that phrase, but also the fact that we know what they do to good cops. We know what they do to the few cops that try to do things. You know, like the movie Serpico exists. This has not changed in the last 50 years. There has never been a time when being the honest cop on the force worked out for anybody. And yet people still seem to think that the majority of police departments are made up of them. Maybe because like, we decided organized crime doesn't have influence over them anymore. Like, I don't understand what that's all about. And, and Tyler, you mentioned that it, it evolved out of slave patrols. And what's interesting to me is particularly in big cities like Chicago and New York, what police departments started to do was basically pull in communities of immigrants that could be used against other communities of immigrants. You know, it was, it was a way of, um, very similar to kind of the Romans pitting one barbarian group against quote unquote barbarian group against another, this idea of, no, no, we're going to make you Confederate with state power so that you go do violence on other people who actually you should have solidarity with. And the fact that that, I mean, I've said before on this show, how depressing it is, how easily those things work, but boy, has it ever worked. Absolutely. But I think it's also, you know, kind of, overwhelming and definitely depressing in, in a lot of senses, but, you know, there is really no more of a radical cause in the United States, in my opinion, um, you know, and, and kind of true cause to the liberation of uh, the people in America. Locally, uh, we have John Brown to look up to who lived just a couple minutes down the road. Um, and, you know, as uh quoted by Harriet Tubman as one of the most important people in the abolition, abolition of slavery, you know, and there was a giant underground railroad network set up here in Akron. And I've heard from people who have stories of people using those underground railroads and back doors to get away from police. And, you know, just 20, 30 years ago, right. And imagine that's the same thing a hundred years ago and 150 years ago. So really, I think that uh, to, to grapple with, the struggle in general, you know, against capitalism and, you know, towards socialism, this kind of abolition has to be at the center of that. And something we've talked about in a number of past episodes on this show is sort of the role of police in um, sort of keeping labor in check in the late 1800s and early 1900s, especially. There are a number of incidents you can point to where police served as the you know, explicit force for, you know, these companies like Ford and uh, big mining concerns at the time against their workers who were often just seeking the right to unionize, let alone to go on strike or to do any of the things that could do with collective power. Um, and so, you know, there's a rich history of police as not just neutral enforcers of the law, which we know now that they aren't, but as sort of 
ideo- an ideological force that serves certain ends. It they serve a purpose, and it's not just this um, sort of uh, neutral, making sure everybody plays by the right rules. And I, I think too, it, it kind of just really highlights the fact that the struggle is so multifaceted. Learning about obviously the the rubber strikes in the 30s here in Akron, um, you know, and the labor unions, the CIO, you know, working on building up uh, organizers as well as the Communist Party, you know, having organizers behind the scenes um, and their kind of battles with the police and knowing that the same battles have been fought by, you know, our black brothers and sisters and siblings, um, you know, for 400 years, you know, and that, that solidarity is really what is revolutionary is tying all of those things together. And, you know, I think again, as, as socialists, as DSA being the largest socialist organization, you know, right now we have an obligation to point out that these are all tied together, you know, that not only are the George Floyd's and Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin's and Jalen Walker's all tied together, but um, you know, that's tied in with why you can't afford uh, to buy a house and, you know, why you can't afford to uh, pay for your medicine this month, um, you know, and uh, why it's, you know, your friend got fired for starting a union. Um, those things are all kind of central to, um, you know, building a better world. This is a sort of, was a while ago in the conversation, but I realized, you know, when we were talking about the, these police officers with, you know, white nationalist tattoos or ties to far right organizations, a, a lot of times in the coverage of incidents like the J1 Walker killing or any of these killings, there is sort of a response from some to say that the officer in question was a racist or to prove that the officer in question was a racist. And you know, as you pointed out earlier, like the institution is, the racism is baked into the institution. It really doesn't matter the individual views of the, you know, eight cops in question here or the, any of those involved in George Floyd's killing or, again, so many incidents I could pick and choose from. It doesn't matter where, whether they have, you know, a swastika on their bicep or, if they're a member of the three percenters, because their job, the role that they play in society is necessarily going to, you know, produce these racist outcomes to produce violence against uh, racial minorities in this country. Um, we have 400 years of history to point to as proof of that. I was going to say that I think that's part of the difficulty that you have because in all the way from school, right, uh, all, all the way through the educational process, you are taught that racism is an individual failing. And I know that for a lot of people listening, I'm about to be preaching to the choir here, but like you really do see um, people struggle to break out of the idea that racism, sexism, classism, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, any of these things, ageism, that they are, people struggle to break out of the idea that these are individual prejudices. They still do. And a lot of our work, I think, has to be pointing out that it it doesn't matter. I mean, some of these officers, 
And I remember with George Zimmerman, the first thing his parents brought up was that he voted for Obama. He can't possibly be racist. And it's, well, it, but the idea of a guy styling himself judge, jury, and executioner as a neighborhood watchman, and not even like an official one, if I remember correctly, is inherently kind of racist. I mean, those are, those signs go up for a reason, and there's a reason that they're uh, threats. In, in my neighborhood, it's we call the police, which, I don't know, doesn't make you sound real badass, but whatever. And I find that that, that cleavage, that moment when people start to realize there's something more than the individual leanings of any particular uh, police person, police officer, that there's something more to that, that the institution is what matters. As you said, Tyler, that's what gets them to start looking at other things. But because I think the 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 violence is so, for lack of a better word, I mean it's it's lurid, right? Like it's it it breaks apart everything else that we have because all the other kinds of decline are just often so boring's not the right word, but banal. Like everything just keeps getting worse in the way that a house that you don't take care of, and then a story like this, unfortunately can represent the chance to kind of like break people out of that, uh, that acceptance. Well, I think, you know, part of that too is, uh, you know, Marx famously talked about alienation of the worker and, you know, that's exactly, exactly what happens with kind of capitalism and hyper individuality of thinking that, you know, you're kind of stuck in this conundrum of I, it's all on me and every choice is on me, but also, if I, you know, do anything, it doesn't matter, you know? Um, and that contradiction is where a lot of people I think live and, you know, with, with capitalism in general, right. We're, we're focused on the productive things. We're focused on, uh, the financial things. We're not focused on the art or the creative side. So it really helps us or hurts us in terms of imagining new institutions, right? You know, these institutions were created by people, by human beings, we can imagine new institutions, right? But uh, you know, a lot of that is is stunted because people don't think that that's possible or that we can. Um, but guess what? You know, it was done before. We can do it again. So I think it's breaking a lot of that out and also kind of creating that space and that community for people, which I've definitely seen kind of in my local chapter. You know, I just I've been a member for over three years, and it's just been like you know some of the best people I've ever met um, and some of the best community I've ever had. Uh, and building those kinds of spaces allow, I think, people to really imagine what can be different and you know, getting that kind of on a large, large level, you know, the working class thinking differently about how our institutions can be imagined is is really revolutionary. Yeah, um, I, I think now would be a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we can dive deeper into that idea of what needs to be done and what organizations can do about this problem. Because as we discussed, it's not something that individuals can solve. It's not an individual problem. So what can we do collectively? We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Tyler. Hey, everyone. Uh, we spent the first 40 minutes of today's show talking about the role of police in society, a conversation that has been brought on once again uh, by the killing of Jalen Walker in Akron. Uh, but as we discussed in the last segment, it really could have been any number of incidents over the past decade plus. Um, what we want to do here in the last 20 minutes or so is talk about the role of organizations on the left, uh, DSA specifically, but organizations in the left more broadly, of you know, what it is it that we can do about this. Because as we said in the last segment, you know, it's easy to feel sort of powerless as individuals. And even when we have put forth a unified front the way we saw in the wake of George Floyd's killing, not much has gotten done about the issue. So how do we change that? Uh, Tower, do you have any ideas? Um, yeah, we, you know, have really just, I think, like I mentioned earlier, uh, have been in action mode, right? Um, you know, just like we were in 2020, it was kind of, we got to jump in and start working on some things um, and be there for the community. And I think that's kind of the first step is being that space for the community that is willing to challenge those voices of authority, um, you know, challenge the police on their story, challenge the mayor, challenge city council, um, and bring those things up uh, unrelentingly. But at the same time, too, it's understanding that you know, DSA chapters all over, um, including Akron, really have a problem reaching Black people and you know, people of color. Um, and that's, uh, really where we've kind of been focusing on, uh, leaning on the community. Um, you know, we've been working with an organization called the Freedom Block, um, and they are a black led organizing collective, uh, just a couple minutes down the street from my house. And, um, you know, they've been really kind of leading the community discussions, the demands, um, and we've been there to support them, uh, and really operate as, uh, you know, our chap our chapter can. Uh, in the capacity that we can. Um, so, you know, offering support when it comes to uh, making our voices heard at city council, um, organizing folks at protests. Um, you know, a lot of times with, with protests, people go out there uh, a couple times a week and they get burnt out. Um, and we never connected, we never got them plugged in. Um, and now it's really kind of focusing on the opposite of that, right? Is if people are coming out, how do we get their, you know, their information? How do we tell them about future things that our chapter has going on and also how do we make things that we're working on in the chapter that we can tell people about uh, interesting and engaging for new folks coming into this movement. So that's kind of where we've been at and obviously things evolve. Uh, and right now, you know, we, the way our chapter operates is based on priority campaigns. So we're kind of in the stage now of really moving to drafting a priority resolution um, so that membership can vote on it. Uh, regarding you know police abolition in the city uh, and the continued kind of pressure and focus on this specific campaign. You know, just from my recollection of how things have played out in Rochester, it's been, you know, sort of a similar story where Rock DSA has been part of the coalition on these movements, but never been, you know, necessarily at the center of that coalition, uh, you know, with the work being done to institute the police accountability board, you know, that was something that, if you had told me in you know 2019 that that could 
happen would have you know, blown my mind. And since it was instituted, since 75% of Rochester voters, you know, chose to put it in place, you know, the power of it has been chipped away at by the police union and by these legal maneuvers. Um, but nevertheless, it was a real victory to get that achieved. And it, it felt like, you know, an accomplishment. And even these small accomplishments that get chipped away at are worth celebrating because otherwise you'll have that burnout, right? Yes. And also because it's important, and we talked about this in the last segment, but to push back against that narrative. A lot of our problem is that there's basically no alternative vision of society, right? Like there's this decision that this is what it is. You're not going to get healthcare. You're not going to get education. And you're not going to get so much as roads without potholes, let alone, you know, a park to take your kids to or um, a doctor that isn't trying to send you for every expensive procedure uh, or, you know, a school with decent resources and teachers that aren't burned out all the time. You're not going to get any of that. What you're going to get, uh, you'll be happy with, because if you're not, then the cops will beat the crap out of you. And it's important in a country that is so addicted to its own myth, that is so high off its own supply, it's important to push back against the narrative that the greater involvement of police and the greater funding and militarization of police is part of progress in some way, shape, or form, which I think is what Joe Biden wants to say. I think it's what Kamala Harris wants to say. I think it's what a lot of these Democratic mayors want to say because they talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, and then they also talk about giving more money to the police. And those two, you cannot do that and not have those two come together as common aspects. And it's important to push back and say things like the Police Accountability Board, uh, things like funding for community care and uh, literally anything other than cops is an important part of taking that history back. It's important to be able to point to things and say, that is better than what was there before. And you can't tell me it's not. The The PAB had some um, had a lot of trouble. Uh, getting off the ground and f- apparently has finally started taking complaints as of a few weeks ago. And the hope is that, you know, eventually it'll break through that the things that it does will be worth it. And if you can create, and DSA is part of the coalition that sort of controls what the PAB does. They're, they're one of many organizations here as it should be. And the hope is that eventually that'll build credibility for an institution like that. I mean, in a lot of cases, the reason people are so okay with what police do is they don't see an alternative. And nobody is interested in giving them one except for these organizations. And I think as socialists, you even if, you know, even if sometimes we might have quibbles with some things, it's our job to show up and, and support and provide the bodies and provide the, 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 the hands and the eyes and, and everything else that they need. Absolutely. Well, and I think like as organizers, you know, to in our communities, understanding that these wins are huge because it makes our job as organizers a little bit better, right? Um, we're chipping away because we know that it isn't just one big piece that's going to fall. Um, and we're chipping away because we know that it's one little piece added here and there to try and band-aid, you know, the, the failure of capitalism. So, you know, for us to be there and make sure that 
we're there where the community needs us. You know, we launched a really large anti-fracking campaign in the city, um, which got a lot of attention and a lot of people involved in what DSA was and learning about things like eco-socialism uh, and reimagining, you know, the way that we uh, operate on an ecological uh, standpoint uh, to the point where the mayor pulled the proposal and they did decided not to frack the water. Right. You know, and like, that's a huge win that we, we were able to celebrate uh, and really take pride in uh, and kind of put in our back pocket to say, look at what we did. Let's, let's keep doing more things. You know, let's see what else we can do um, with the power of all these people. We can really make some change happen. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're at now with the community coming together and this coalition being really strong is uh, really developing some working class power in Akron that can make some change happen. I think, also, there's something uniquely radicalizing about this issue in particular, policing, uh, in a way that isn't necessarily the true for other causes that one can get invested in. Like You can be an environmentalist without wanting to uh, destroy the whole system, but when you start realizing the issues with police as we see them, it calls into question everything. In, in a way, it calls into question the legitimacy of every institution that the police are there to protect and uphold. It, um, it, you know, just anecdotally, when we, the month after the George Floyd protest broke out, that was the biggest Zoom call we ever had for a general meeting that I can remember. You know, I saw people that I knew from high school on that Zoom call and, you know, to our chagrin and it's worth examining why a lot of those people weren't back the next month. You know, it was a moment that, you know, where these people were considering real radical alternatives and, you know, that moment dissipated for a lot of people. And and so it's a question of how do we better prepare ourselves for the next moment for the next incident? Because unfortunately, as we've discussed throughout the show, there's, always going to be a next incident. Um, yeah. And as you've probably picked up, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty big optimist, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty hopeful guy, but you know, a lot of those things that y'all are dealing with, you know, even this happening in our backyard, um, it's a struggle to get members, you know, to really step up and take leadership roles on things. You know, it's the steering committee that's really pulling a lot of the weight, um, which again, like is not, a struggle I there's not a struggle I'd rather be in, you know, right now. Um, and I'm happy to be so involved in this, but, um, there is, yeah, that kind of question of, you know, this is happening here and we have this unique chance to really shape the future, especially if we have numbers and, uh, it's still difficult for us to get our membership involved, um, you know, past a certain point. And that's been a bit frustrating to see from a, you know, small chapter. There are losses in the fight. You know, there are times when all your best efforts and intentions simply aren't enough. Uh, nobody said that this work is easy, right? Um, it's, and particularly on this front, because it is so all encompassing and, you know, contains, you know, so many factors that tie into every other issue. It's such a big fight that it can seem you know, impossible at times. And I, I think one of the goals of the socialist movement has to be to say that 
actually nothing is impossible, that these things can be done, that these things um, aren't set in stone. Not, not just can be done. They must be done. No, and I was going to say, too, like, I think, you know, I may have sounded a bit kind of harsh in the last uh, thing I said, just with how frustrating, you know, being a leader and, and putting a lot of this work uh, onto ourselves is. But at the same time, too, it's also knowing that, like, I'm that's not judgment on anyone. Right. Like, I know how damn hard this is. Like, I know working a job and giving hours to DSA and trying to maintain, you know, your relationships is hard. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing that I want folks to know too, is if you are involved in DSA or you're not, and you want to, but you've got some kind of internalized shame about coming back, um, we're open, you know, with open arms for people who want to join the movement or get back involved with the movement. You know, there's, there's no shame in taking time for yourself or, um, you know, resting or coming back and realizing, hey, I should have been here. That's okay. Um, you know, and we know as organizers too that shame doesn't get us anywhere. You know, Donald Trump getting elected made it harder for us to organize, not easier. Uh, it didn't, you know, wake people up and get them fired up. It got them scared. Um, so, you know, being there to say like, you know, hey, I know it's tough, but we got this if we're together and there's no shame if you need to take time for yourself is really important. The thing that I keep coming back to is how many of these conversations I've had over the past several years that essentially revolve around whether somebody is willing to envision a better world or not. And there are a lot of people out there who I think on some level want there to be one and would love there to be one, but can't break out of this mindset that this reality is all there is. And I think. Uh, uh, I think it's it's particularly important to hold on to optimism like Tyler's, an optimism that I often don't share, I will admit. But I think it's important to hold on to it as a practice because otherwise, otherwise you burn out long before any impact you might have. And even if you're even if you're like me and you don't have a lot of hope that things will get better or you, you tend to not have a lot of hope that things will get better. I have found that on some level, it doesn't matter as long as, that you, as long as you accept that your job is to make them better regardless. That's what moves me. That's what motivates me. Because then my personal feelings on the matter don't enter into the equation. I, I think that's a healthy attitude to have, to recognize that, you know, battles are worth fighting, even if they are losing battles. There are mm -hmm. causes worth fighting for and being out on the streets for, even if, as we've seen so many times, you know, the people in power just aren't going to listen. They are going to wait you out. They're going to, you know, beat you out. And in cases like this, they are, you know, the tools, they have so many tools and it feels like we have so few. All, all we have is our voices and our bodies. And, you know, for some of the problems we face that those tools may not be enough to get the job done. But when I, I think that, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, as a you know member of DSA and really as a socialist organizer, I don't think I've ever found a better spot to be in, in terms of my place in the world. Right. Like, I don't think I've done 
better work for my community or my neighbors or my friends um, anywhere else than the work I've done for DSA and, um, you know, the work I've done organizing my community. And I think that that's, you know, the, where I'm really proud and where I think a lot of socialist organizers should be proud is, you know, that is the tangible work, you know, sending emails and doing office work. That's fine. But getting out there and meeting your neighbors and building, you know, that, that community and that power is, is what changes the world. That's, I think, a good note to send us out on. Um, I know your time is limited, Tyler, and I really want to thank you for coming on because you've been a wonderful guest and this is an important Absolutely. subject to discuss. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on and yeah, I really appreciate the time y'all have spent and absolutely sending solidarity from Akron. Uh, can't wait to, to keep in the, in the struggle with y'all. Uh, for this week, I'm Ryan. I was Noah. And this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.